Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. Dollar Store Dave is back. <laughs> back to Dollar Store. Yes. After, you know, it's just like you leave me alone again, and you go to the Dollar Store and you do your karate thing, and I'm just yeah, I'm just sad and lonely <laughs> with my old dog here, just. Crying and not much going on. I'm sorry, on. Al. You know you're not. I know you're not. <laughs> you love every minute of it. Torture. Terrible. I'm going to hit every dollar store for, for Blu-rays and DVDs. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't imagine how many you have. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Not enough. Not enough. Never enough. Never enough. I wonder how many never get watched. Um, well, they're, they're, in, they're in queue. It's the, the to-be-watch list. What does that mean, in queue? So how long does that take? Like, you know. Well, it depends. Things get moved up. and oh, depends priority. on what you, what you feel like. You gotta, yeah, yeah. you got to triage these things. <laughs> that sounds like a whole lot of horse. Horse hockey. Yes. Stuff yeah. you tell your wife so you can get away with it. Yes. Well, that's yeah. true. Yeah. I know. She doesn't let me get away with anything. What are you talking about? <laughs> are you going to get your, your cat? Do you get vaccinations for your cat? You know, just, just the regular stuff. Yeah, people are refusing those, but I know on the dogs, there, I mean, there like people are not getting, something. Yeah, you know, you get because I go take my dog in for shots. You know, it's normal, yeah. but shots every yeah, couple once of a years year. and all that. And, and uh, yeah, there's people that are decided that uh, they're not going to do that. I guess they're oh. worried they might give their dog autism. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I hadn't heard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's crazy. Crazy. Wow. Yeah. So now today, speaking of crazy. <laughs> we're going to be covering the medieval, and oh. uh, we're going to learn about poor hygiene and bad table manners. <laughs> It'd be like eating at the uh, Martino restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be having a new book coming out here October 17th, and it's called Chivalry and Courtesy, Medieval Manners for a Modern World. And, of course, the... Our guest is the author of this book, uh, Danielle Sabolski. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. This is an interesting topic. So you are writing 
about what it was really like. And, and the little blurb says it's a surprising look at how medieval etiquette can improve our lives today. Mm-hmm. So uh, how does that happen? How can we improve our life today? Uh, well, everybody's got such good manners and dress code today. Yes. Well, it doesn't come from nowhere. And actually, <laughs> in your introduction, you have hit on two of the biggest myths of the Middle Ages. One, that people were not clean. And actually, we know that they did bathe and they did wash their hands. They washed their hands, especially before they ate. And they did have table manners. And the table manners that they have written down in books that have come down to us are really similar to ones that you have today. Ones like not putting your elbow on the table, not eating with such a big mouthful that you can't talk or take a good breath. That kind of stuff is actually really, really old, and it's all been written down for us, so we can access that now. So the type of table manners that we have from, you know, 13th, 14th century is stuff that's still relevant to us today. I mean, was that just a certain segment of the population, or was it in, you know, the majority of people? Because if I walk into a... KFC nowadays, it's not unusual for me to pe- see people throwing their chicken bones on the floor or or licking their plastic <laughs> knives. I mean, this is <laughs> – so is this like – was that a common behavior for everyone back then? Well, you're noticing it because it's unusual, right? You're noticing it because it's not something that you would be doing at home. It's not something you'd be doing in your own house, right, throwing chicken bones on the floor. You're noticing it because it's unusual. And so – One of the things that's tricky about the Middle Ages is the people who were writing were people who tended to be above the rank of peasant, right? So those are the people who had a literary education. So when we look at books of etiquette, they are aimed at a certain portion of the population that is usually above peasant. But that doesn't mean that peasants actually were picking their noses at the table because no one actually likes that, right? In in human history, you can always find people saying, don't be rude at the table because it's not something that other people like to see when they're eating. So while the books that we have from the Middle Ages are aimed at an upper level of society, because those are the people who would be reading the books, it's pretty safe to assume. And we know from from other things like coroner's rolls that people are having baths because sometimes they're drowning in the attempt to have a bath at the river. You know, they might go in too far and they might drown. So we know from outside examples that people are doing things like being clean. So in another way, when we know that people are trying to have good etiquette, for example, at the table, the people who are peasants are probably emulating the people who are writing the books. So it's a really good assumption that people had pretty good table manners, especially as compared to, you know, what we think about the Middle Ages when we watch something like a movie about it where everybody is being disgusting at the table. It's unlikely to have been like that in most homes in the Middle Ages. Well, then why do they do that? Like when we when we watch these uh, old series or movies or shows about, you know, that time period, quite often it's right. You see the, the people are quite, you know, they burp at the table and they, they're very... I don't know, raw, I guess. They're just um, outright rude in some cases. And it seems to be a a vast majority of these. In fact, I don't think I've seen a show where they are polite unless it's, you know, the king or the queen of something of, uh, and they're very well off and then they're served and they're much better behaved. Yeah, there's a very good reason for that. And that is that it makes us look good. 
right? When we look back on the past, we like to think of it as being sort of a linear progression, right? Their technology wasn't as good back there, which means that we are better because our technology is better. And we like to think of ourselves as being more evolved than people were back in the day. So it makes us look good when we look back to the past and we suggest that perhaps because they didn't, not everyone could read books, that means that they were also uncouth, for example. And there really isn't a lot of evidence to suggest that when you look at actual sources from the Middle Ages. But it does make us look good. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel evolved. Well, what do we know about the pe uh, the peasantry? Um, you know, how they lived? Are, are there historical records about them? We have to look at them sort of indirectly. So the way that you look at things like peasantry is through things like archaeology and through things like um, a lot of, well, coroner's roles, like I mentioned, and also legal records because people in the Middle Ages are actually very litigious. They like to sue each other. They like to sue each other for things like <laughs> robbery and even slander. Um, so you have people who are making legal cases, which means that they have to have a lot of documentation. And in that, you can find things like what words do people use that were insulting, for example? How did they figure out where the borders were of this place or that place? And if you have someone that is well, there is one case, for example, where there were two ladies of the night who went to court because one slandered the other by saying she was dirty. So when you look at that and you, you see what an insult it was to be called dirty, then you can extrapolate from that that people didn't like being dirty, for example. Things like bathhouses, if we're sticking with hygiene for now, we know that people were spending money to go to the bathhouses. So you have to look at peasants indirectly because they're not writing stuff usually by themselves. Sometimes you do have somebody who came up and was educated in the church and so might have had a very humble beginning and might have written later. But for the vast majority of peasants, you have to look at them indirectly through things like legal records. Right. She was a dirty girl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not allowed to swear here, so I'm being very careful about how I put this. Uh, but yeah, basically, somebody was saying that this person was was a dirty girl, and, and she did not like that, so she sued them. I'm a dirty girl. I like that. I think it would help. No, but where do these manners and rules, where did the rules come from in the sense of, what you were allowed to do, like when you say wash your hands or no elbow on the table and stuff like that, where where did they take their rules from? So if you're talking about the origins of etiquette, I can't tell, I can't tell you because this is probably something that goes back like into prehistory. But where do we find them in terms of the Middle Ages? We find them in books written for children. And so it's very, it's very familiar when you look at a book that's written with manners for children because maybe people were being educated, a lot of boys were educated, for example, by the church in a monastery school or cathedral school. So boys are being told, like, don't pick your nose at the table, don't clean your nails at the table, don't talk with your mouth full. And so when it's aimed at children, it's really familiar because this is exactly what we say to our children at the table, right? Don't do that. You can also look at archaeological finds. For example, when we talk about hand washing, we know people wash their hands before they ate, in part because we have examples of the bowls that they used and the vases that they used in order to pour water over guests' hands. And we also know that we have linen napkins and tablecloths because there's records of that being done as laundry or being rented out by people for banquets and things like that. So again, we're looking at it kind of indirectly. Where did people get the idea that it's good to be polite? I don't know. <laughs> but where do we find the evidence for etiquette? Usually in books for children and archaeological finds. 
Why did you get into writing this? Like, what, what led you down this path? Well, I'm always really interested in the human story for two reasons. One is that we tend to have a really bad impression of the Middle Ages, and what is that based on? Not much, really. So I'm always interested in, in sort of making the, the field level, looking at the evidence, looking at what it looks like to be human in the Middle Ages. And the second part is I just love a human story. I love stories of people, which is something that I'm sure you two can relate to as well. The stories of people are the stories that are interesting. And so looking at what people were into, what was part of their culture on the everyday side of things is always interesting to me, and it's kind of the basis of all of my work. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting sub subject in that um, – how, where do you do your research for this, or how long does that take? <laughs> well, it really depends. So I've been working on the Middle Ages for close to 20 years, so there's a lot that's already in my brain. <laughs> there's a lot that just sort of comes out depending on the context. I also have a podcast called The Medieval Podcast where I speak to a different expert every week, so I'm collecting information all the time. This book took me about a year to write start to finish and some of that was targeted research for holes gaps in my knowledge and some of it just comes from the fact that I've been doing this for a long time so I have quite a lot sort of stored up over time. Did you, did you sort of have a, a point or something you wanted people to get out of the book? I'm always trying to get people to recognize our shared human nature so this is important to me, not only because it gives us a better understanding of the past, but it's a practice that we get into when we start to look at somebody from a completely different culture and we see the similarities between them and us. It's really useful when you're looking at the past, but it's also something that you can definitely apply to today. Once you are in the practice of looking at a culture so removed from ours and recognizing and empathizing with this human nature, then I think you can apply that skill to looking at somebody from across the world and having a more compassionate understanding of where they're coming from. So it sounds really cheesy, but actually this is a big part of how I come at things and why I come at things this way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting idea. It's not something I see a lot in, 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 in the world. Um, do, how do you how do you explain this? Do you tell it in a story like fashion with characters, or do you just sort of explain it in uh, in in terms of what the rules were? So, for this particular book, and it's very similar to a book that I did called How to Live Like a Monk, which is about wellness and the lessons we can learn from the monastic context in the Middle Ages, um, and apply that. This is with just short sections that talk about what things were like back then, how we can apply them today. So these books are not particularly narrative. I am afraid of writing fiction. I think it's too scary. <laughs> I will stick to nonfiction every time. So this is really, it's something I've done throughout my career. I started out writing articles for the internet under the moniker The Five Minute Medievalist because there's a lot that you can get across to people in five minutes, and I know people's time is short. So I tend to do things in short little bursts, and that's the way this book is written as well. So you have a short section on table manners, a short section on what the table looked like, for example. That's just the first chapter. Then I have a chapter on like how to romance somebody, then one on how to fight, how to run a household, how to run a kingdom. So it's not character-based, but I do pull out figures from the Middle Ages when they're applicable, or quotes from the Middle Ages to show, to demonstrate how relatable it is. So those are there, but I don't do it in a narrative fashion for this particular book.
Well, speaking of, of fighting, uh, one of your chapters is on yeah. that. And uh, going back also to etiquette, mm. was it dangerous not to be polite in the Middle Ages? I know in Japan's Middle Ages, you could literally lose your head. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why they have such a polite society. I was just wondering if anything came from that type of, of uh, you know, possible personal combat. I don't know a lot about Japan, so I'm going to leave that to you. But in Europe, you kind of had to do something pretty extreme for it to come to violence. You know, you have a lot of duels in the 18th, 19th century that have to do with honor that are sometimes just an excuse for people to throw down <laughs> because it looked manly, for example. But it took a lot. You don't see a lot of examples of duels unless, the, for example, like not a lot of dueling in general in the Middle Ages. But when it comes to violence between people, you have to insult them quite a lot in order for things to get rough. Now, we do know that there were, when we look at crime statistics, for example, when people got drunk, and they did, <laughs> that's when you'd have more violence that was triggered by smaller things. But in general, if we're talking about chivalry, for example, if we're talking about knights, it would take kind of a lot to get them to throw down. Yeah, and it's quite a different world. I guess you have to really take that into account and uh, and how much quieter it would have been in the house, in the rooms, um, without the even the, the sound of electricity running through your home. Mm -hmm. You don't have the same white noise for sure, but then you do have that background nature noise that <laughs> uh, as soon as you try and sleep in a tent, you notice right away, right? Right, right. You know, the goddamn goat is yelling, you know, I just... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so what was it like what was their average household run like like um is it similar to what we do today but just without a lot of the modern appliances per se or whatever i guess things would take a lot longer like you know if you were to cook a dinner and or to make food for everyone you actually had to go bake your own bread and kill your animal i guess if you ate animals and then cook it and do the whole thing it's not like you could run to the store yeah so well you're bringing up a couple of really interesting points without modern appliances it does take a lot to do anything especially feed yourself which means that that can really change the shape of your day so if you look at the peasantry for example the men are doing most of the work in the fields all day, and they're doing a lot of that physical plowing and reaping and that kind of stuff. And women are doing the work inside the house that involves, well, all of the household chores, but imagine doing those without appliances. It takes up a lot of the day. And then you do have the children helping out, doing things like feeding animals, for example. In the city, it's a little bit different because you can't have a kitchen in every apartment because of the fire hazard. So you have a lot of people that will go and get their food from a, a restaurant, basically, or get takeout every day because they don't have you know, the means to cook it inside the house, or they will bring the stuff that they've made at home and cook it at the bakery. So that is a little bit different. So that's where you have things like tradespeople or merchants who are having sort of a different lifestyle in that they're not spending all their time cooking because they don't have the facilities in their home necessarily. So it's a little bit different. And then if you're a noble, a lot of your time, if you're a man, is going to be spent doing administration. So most of the nobility is landowners. So they're taking care of the people on the land. They are doing correspondence. They're dealing with difficulties, interpersonal difficulties. If you're a woman, well, I should, before I leave men behind, men are also training 
for war of their nights. They're going to be training part of the day. And they'll be going to mass as well. And then you have women who are directing the servants who are doing most of the manual labor. They might be educating their children. They might be reading. They might be, even the noble ladies are creating the textiles for the household. So including things like um, your shirts or your wall hangings or your cushions or the stuff for the bedding. So everybody has something to do. There's not a huge amount of leisure time in the way there is today. That said, there were a lot of days where you weren't supposed to do a lot of work. And those days, those holy days, you'd be spending, you know, maybe reading or listening to music or going to a festival. Is that what they do? I mean, because I, I there's not like they can sit down and turn on the television, right? I mean, right. <laughs> yep. They're not streaming yep. movies. Uh, or they're yeah. not going to the dollar store and buying Blu-rays. So I guess what was their idea of entertainment? Because as we see it in movies and shows, it kind of shows the rich people have, you know, people come in and, uh, you know, kind of act or sing or perform. But what were what were the average people doing that couldn't afford to have entertainment brought into your place? Well, I think it helps to, again, sort of cast your mind to camping, right? If you don't have your electronic devices, how do you entertain yourself? You might read. You might have someone read aloud, which happened quite a lot. You might have someone tell a story, a ghost story. Uh, you usually have someone bring out an instrument, like a guitar, and people will sing along or they'll chat or that kind of stuff. So that same type of activity that we have when the power goes out is this the type of activity people were doing. So there's a lot of board games in the Middle Ages. Some of them, you know, like backgammon only takes a stick in the dirt to draw some triangles and then some pebbles and then you're good to go. So people played a lot of games. They sang a lot of songs. They did go to plays, but the plays tended to be connected to certain times of year and festivals. But yeah, singing, playing games, telling stories, all the type of stuff that we do when we don't when we're not plugged into our electronics. <laughs> wow. To me, camping is a hotel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe this is Northern Ontario coming out here, but <laughs> I think about camping as a good example. <laughs> He's roughing it. Yeah. <laughs> well, what was a night's training like, and how do we get that information? Has that been passed on by woodcuts, or, or how do we get that? That's a really good question. And woodcuts are something that are happening right at the end of the Middle Ages. And the reason for that is the printing press and paper. So if you're looking at most of Europe during most of the Middle Ages, those illustrations are hand-painted. So just kind of FYI, it's a good question. A lot of the information about nightly training was written down by knights themselves. Sometimes it was meant to show you that knights were really tough, and here's the thing they could do. <laughs> so there's uh, in the book, there is a little bit of... Boussico's training, he was a French knight, and it talks about things like he would swing an axe, you know, cut trees to, to build up his body. He could scale a ladder using just one hand. He could do somersaults in full armor. He could dance. <laughs> you know, all of these things are part of knightly training. And actually, one of my favorite movies and one of, my, one of the movies that most medievalists like, if not like best, is A Knight's Tale. And if you watch that movie, there is a knight who is jousting against something called the Quintain. And this is something, it's a shield on a pole with a sandbag on the other end of a pole. And if you hit it just right, you can keep riding and the sandbag doesn't swing around and hit you. But if you hit it wrong, the sandbag <laughs> will swing around and hit you. 
So you can also see things like if you go to medieval times, you'll see people who are jousting using their lance to get a ring that's suspended from somewhere, suspended from the ceiling. And that kind of stuff was nightly training. So all the things that will help you build up your body in terms of the type of activities you have to do. Like if you have to swing an axe, it's almost the same type of movement that you use if you're swinging a sword. So there's this kind of thing. So we do have that, and we also have some sources that they use for military tactics, for example, which they took from the Roman Empire. So Romans also really like to write down how-to things. So there is a book called De Re Militari by a guy called Vegetius, and he talks about military strategy. And we know from the number of times it was copied and copied and copied that this is something knights were reading as well in order to understand strategy. Wow. How, how was their education? What was it like for an average person um, before? Because I'd imagine we didn't, they didn't have the school system like they do now. It's not the same for sure. And a lot of that sort of mandatory schooling type of stuff, at least in places like England, happened during Shakespeare's day, so just after the Middle Ages. And it's really facilitated by things like the printing press because more people have more access to more books. So most children were educated at home. If they had a book, then their parents could teach them. Usually their moms would teach them how to read. And you would want to read in your own language if you could, but especially in Latin. Latin was going to give you access to all of the books that are being written at the time. It was the, the language of learning. And it also gave you access to things like biblical texts, like the Bible. So learning Latin is important. Around the age of seven, a boy would be sent to school. And they might be sent to a cathedral school or a monastic school. So actually going to the monastery for school, um, not necessarily staying there all the time, but that's where you go to school, around seven. And then you would be learning things like math, music. You'd be learning rhetoric, so how to speak well. You'd be learning astronomy, all sorts of that kind of stuff. Logic, these are the type of things that you'd be learning in school. And then afterwards, you could decide to go to university. Usually those people who went to university were going to study theology or law or even medicine later on. But most of the time, people got just a good enough education. And if you were educated by a monastic school or cathedral school, you could get yourself a job in the church, which is really important. Or you could get yourself a job. Anything that involves literacy is something you could get if you had an education. So it's not the type of thing where you would give away every son except for the first one to, to the monastery. That's not would happen. But if you were able to send a child to school because you didn't need them at the farm, then they could have a really good living afterwards because they were literate. Most girls were not educated outside of the home unless they were probably going to be nuns later on. And then they would go and be educated at a convent. Right. And I was going to ask that. I mean, what was what was it like being the female or a woman in, in those times um, of, of a household and stuff? I guess, in, in essence, you were really kind of, you didn't really have rights. I guess your, your parents would decide who you would marry in a lot of cases. It really depends on who you are. So usually, if you were a member of the nobility, Yes, your parents would decide who you were going to marry because then, then it wasn't about love as much as it was about property. So then your parents would decide. And you might get betrothed as a child, although you wouldn't consummate that relationship until you were a teenager. That's You weren't supposed to do that. So if there is a case in which somebody did, when a, a 
kid was still a child, then that is somebody that was something that was noticed and remarked upon. But that's kind of what happened with the nobility. If you were a peasant, then you had a lot more choice. And you usually didn't get married until you were around 20. And the reason for that is because you were working, usually as a teenager, maybe as a servant, maybe as a field hand, and building up money so that you could create your own household. So you might have your parents, it might be a lot easier if your parents actually liked the person you were into, but you didn't necessarily need their permission, and it wasn't the same way as it was for nobility. Now, the interesting thing about marriage in the Middle Ages is the church tried to control it as much as they could, but legally, you only had to say, would you like to get married? And if the other person said yes, and then you went to bed together, you were married. So if you really wanted to get married and your parents didn't approve, you could just get married anyway behind the haystack, and it was legally valid. Yeah, that's how Dave did it. But your, <laughs> your, question was about, your question was about women, though, and I forgot. Well, no, yeah, I just <laughs> um, meant like because, okay, when you're growing up, you're the girl in the household, right? And you're a mm -hmm. teenager, and, and so you're not really sent to school per se in general. You're doing work around the house. So what happens, you sort of just go out there and meet a guy and then you marry him and you start to have kids and the whole thing. Like, is it, is there a lot of choice in your life uh, as a female? Well, I mean, there's, there's less than if you're a man, but there's more than if you were a woman in earlier and later periods of history. So they had more agency than some other women in history. So it wasn't the worst time to be a woman, but you were legally under the control of either your parents or your husband. So when a lot of women were widowed, they didn't get remarried. About a third of women didn't get remarried because they had more power as widows than they did as wives. But if you were a woman in the Middle Ages, it was much easier to share the household with a partner. I mean, it was easier for men too, because as we mentioned earlier, there's so much work that goes into just living every day. It's much easier to do that with a partner. So they had the choice to get married or not get married, but it was often more practical to get married because then you would be able to share the load, the actual physical load of of creating meals for the day or creating your household or things like fixing the roof, you know, it was easier to be married. But there were women who decided they didn't want to be married or they didn't want to stay married or they didn't want to remarry. And a lot of those women would go to a convent and they would become nuns because they could spend their days doing some physical labor, but also reading and studying. And that wasn't necessarily something they could do at home. So they did have more choice than we tend to think, but less than we do now. I wouldn't want to live back then as a woman. This is a pretty good time to be alive as a woman. Yeah, and uh, because I would guess, too, if once you're married, it's not like you're going to get an easy divorce. And if you have children, you, you wouldn't want to divorce then, right, back then. So if things went south, you could go to your family, and you could live separately from your husband. And we do know that people did that sometimes. But, yeah, you did have a difficult choice to make. And it would be really hard. But you also have the rest of the community involved, right? So even though you could technically 
have violence in the household, and that was okay to a certain point. You also had the neighbors who would have an intervention and be like, hey, this is not cool. To a husband, that was abusive, for example. So the community is also aware and involved, and so it's not, it's not black and white. I mean, history is never black and white. Right, but it would be a difficult thing if you wanted to leave your husband. That said, we know that people did it. I guess they wouldn't have a gay and lesbian community or bar, would they? <laughs> no, but we do know that. So legally, I mean, in terms of church law, homosexuality was a sin. So you wanted to hide it. But we do know that there were some people that lived together that were probably not roommates. But everyone left them alone because they're like, well, they could be roommates. Like, unless you walk in on them, you're not 100% sure. So I think there were a lot of people who were closeted and they just didn't make waves. And they lived, you know, as roommates and thought, like, and, and tried to live as quietly as possible. And I think that happened quite a lot. We do have some legal cases where people were asked, and this is something across the board when it comes to the church, I think, People have the impression that the church was always quick to burn people alive, which they weren't. So if you had, if you did something sinful, for example, you were living, you're a woman, and you were living as a man, this was something that the church didn't like, and they would ask you to reform. And if you didn't, then they would punish you. So we do have examples of that, court cases of that. But I think a lot of the people who were gay and lesbian or trans back in the day, they just tried to live under the radar as much as possible. And I think there are examples where I think the community probably knew about it and just didn't say anything because they were nice people, you know. So it was a difficult time to live and to be LGBTQ, but uh, that's not to say that these people didn't exist at the time because they definitely did. People have always been, you know, LGBTQ. Now, um I, what, what would the medical be like, and and if they had some sort of physical problems or ailments and stuff, I guess it would be a lot less knowledgeable or scientific as it is now. I guess people would be a lot. Were the did they have doctors, and what kind were they? Yeah, so they had doctors, and they had different sort of flavors of doctors, right? So for women's ailments, you'd go to the midwife. She would have a lot of knowledge that is not in the books because the books were written by dudes. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of gynecological information uh, is not written down because this is not something that dudes would necessarily know. Some of it is. So you have medical doctors who are trained in Greek and Roman medicine, and Greek and Roman medicine is the is the genesis of ideas like the four humors, which you may have heard of. And this is where like bloodletting comes out because you want to balance the humors. Maybe you have they thought too much phlegm or too much blood and we need to we need to drain off some of it. So those were the people who have been educated at university to be doctors. And they would be looking at holistic things like what are you eating? How are you sleeping? Maybe you should have a bath for therapeutic reasons, that kind of stuff. But they are the ones who would be looking at theory. The people who would be conducting surgery tended to be barber surgeons. And this might sound really weird until you think about the fact that barbers are the people with the sharpest knives. And that's what you want when it comes to surgery, right? You want people with really good equipment, sharp knives. And so there were anatomy textbooks that told you what was under the skin. There were lots of books that were written by doctors, a really famous one from the Islamic world. I think he was 11th century, a guy called Avicenna or Ibn Sina. 
his book was written and distributed throughout Europe. So that talks about the best way to cauterize a wound, for example, that you should filter your water, and here's the best way to filter your water. Here's how you deal with heat stroke, things like that. So there is a lot of knowledge hanging around. And then there's a lot that's really hard for us to grasp in that it would be knowledge that you get based on plants in your environment, for example. Some of this is written down. We do have like herbals that tell you what certain plants were good for. But then there's also the stuff that you get from, you know, your neighbor would tell you, here's one, one thing that you should have. And some of these things still are good. People still use leeches in medical context today and maggots. <laughs> um, uh, people still use white willow bark, but it is now synthesized to be aspirin. So there's that kind of stuff. And then if you needed uh, a medicine, you'd go to an apothecary. And they knew all sorts of stuff, just like pharmacists do today. They could help you in ways that you know may be known today, may not be known today. That kind of person-to-person -person information that is really hard to track at this distance. Right, right. They were cooking, you know, frog legs and... Some of, them, some of the potions are very weird, but some of them may have actually worked. And, you know, people are always trying to learn more and trying to stop pain. And that's something that I think is just common to the human experience. And, and where did their, their rules, like when you said that they, you know, daily washing your hands or, you know, and the behavior around that, did, did they do that for a particular reason? Was it because they had any sort of idea of germs or things like that? Or what, what was in their mindset where they would wash their hands before dinner, for instance? Well, germ theory wasn't a thing at this time. So they didn't have an idea of tiny germs making people sick. Interestingly, they did understand the fact that if you shared air with someone who was sick, you were likely to get sick. So this is something that they were very aware of and uh, paid attention to, especially when there was the Black Death, for example. Keep that distance. You don't want to, to inhale the breath of somebody who's sick. In that case, they were thinking it was attached to smell, so a lot more tangible than germs, which you know we can't picture. But again, I think it's pretty common. You don't want to eat dirt. <laughs> so if you see there's dirt on your hands, you want to get that off before you put it in your mouth. So it has less to do with germ theory and more to do with the fact that People like to be clean. I mean, like, it's going to be northern Ontario again, but, like, even raccoons wash their hands, you know? <laughs> like, I think that there is a natural impulse to be clean and not to put dirt in your mouth. So I think it has to do with just kind of a natural human impulse to be clean more than germ theory, which wasn't a thing at the time. Well, what about that woman on TikTok going around all over saying that she hasn't wiped her bum in two years and that people shouldn't wipe? I mean... Um, we... <laughs> we we actually know that people did wipe in the Middle Ages, actually. <laughs> so this woman is behind the times. <laughs> oh, see, see, she doesn't know. Well, you need to get on TikTok and set her straight because she's no two years now without it. I wouldn't want to sit on a bus next to her, but hey, that's a different story. No, absolutely not. There are a lot of really good medievalists who are on TikTok. I'm technically there, but I don't really post anything. <laughs> you need to get on there and start telling people. I know. You need to start wiping. I know. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, well, this is a really, really interesting uh, book. It sounds really good. Um, so now it comes out October 17th. Now, are mm -hmm. you, um, where do you like readers and people to find you? What social media? Do you have a website? Uh, 
what, what happens? Okay, I have a website, and it is just my name, com. And I know that my name is very difficult to spell. So if you go on social media, you can find me at 5MINMedievalist, basically across the board. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and now Blue Sky. So you can look me up that way. Or you can listen to my podcast, just called The Medieval Podcast, and find me through there. Well, great. Of course, we'll have that up on our website. People can find you then easily without no, not. They don't have to know how to spell your name, right? So <laughs> That's good. That's That's just good. make it just one click, you know. Listen, so, right. you know, um, what about these restaurants that are medieval restaurants, you know, where you can go in and they they throw food around and they call you names and all that sort of stuff and you get to dress mm-hmm. up like, a, you know, an old time person from middle middle ages and stuff so are they really not very realistic by doing that well i tell you what if you go if you go to medieval times they will feed you chicken which they did have in europe at the time but they will feed you tomato soup which was not in europe at the time because tomatoes are from the americas they will feed you a potato which you could also not get in europe because it's from the americas and corn which you could also not get because it's from the americas so that kind of gives you an idea of what they're working from so they're trying to give you an experience that is foreign and exciting and they're they're doing it in a way that is not authentic for example medieval people would be eating their soup with a spoon <laughs> but uh they it's it's fun it's the type of thing like a medieval movie where you go to it and you just kind of turn off the historian in you but for the people who go there and they like it and they want to learn more that's when they should come to my work because my whole my whole reason for being is to take those people and show them what it was really like so they really in general, you think the public doesn't have a really good idea or what it was really like to live in those times. Yeah, I think in general, what's happened is we've been taking old information and we've been repeating it. So I learned in school that Columbus thought the earth was flat or everyone thought the earth was flat until Columbus. And that is absolutely not true. If you look at the evidence and I've, I've done a TED talk, you can see the evidence if you are interested. But people have known since the days of the ancient Greeks that or even longer that the world is a sphere. So I'm not blaming my teachers for telling me this, but I do know that we know more so we can share more. So I think when we have a question or whenever we whenever we look at something that makes people look so different from us that they seem like aliens, it's probably not correct. So whenever you look at something, you're like, whoa that's super savage or I don't understand it at all. That means that's a place to look and see if what everyone is telling you is correct. I mean, I think that's true across the board when people talk about like lizard man conspiracies, but also when people talk about the Middle Ages when they're like, you know, everyone just like was disgusting all the time. Like, where are you getting this information from? There are so many really amazing experts out there. Now it's so easy to find out if that's right. So I, I'm always encouraging people to to dig into those places where it seems like things are incomprehensible and find out if that little nugget of information is right in the first place. What's the evidence? Yeah. When we look at the evidence from the Middle Ages, people were just like us. Right. Yeah. You, I mean, get out there and join the Flat Earth Society. There's only... <laughs> 
If you join the Flat Earth Society, you are behind the times by thousands of years. Oh, there's 300,000 members now, so, I mean, they're doing well. Yeah. Hey, uh, witchcraft. <laughs> Was that a big influence yeah. back then? Witchcraft is more of a thing that was people were afraid of in the early modern period. So we're talking after about 1500. So that book everyone talks about, The Hammer of Witches, Malleus Maleficarum, it wasn't written until almost the end of the Middle Ages, so around 1450 or later, um, maybe a bit earlier than that. But it's it's late. It's at the end of the Middle Ages. But things like the, the Salem witch trials, that is not medieval, not even close. So there weren't a lot of witch trials in the Middle Ages at all. You might be given trouble for being a heretic. Some people were burned for being heretics, but it's not something that was done reflexively either, right? So you would be accused of doing something, and the priest would say, well, don't do that again. And if you didn't do it again, you were fine. <laughs> but if you kept on and they thought you were a threat to the Christian community, that's when you'd be in trouble. But it didn't happen all that much in the Middle Ages at all. When we talk about witchcraft persecutions and a lot of heretical persecutions, those are in the early modern period when people are starting to say, we are so much better than the Middle Ages. We are so much more educated and, and enlightened. That's the time when the witch burnings are happening. Wow. So, it, so they didn't really have like a big... Uh... Uh, fear of of witches and warlocks and and or even ghosts and evil spirits and stuff or did they kind of get into that oh people have always been into the supernatural and they did believe that you did have to be careful of things like fairies but how many times have you seen people today like throw salt over their shoulders or be careful of black cats like it's not something that goes away ghostbusters is still a thing because people still like ghosts so again this is this is really common and the more we are like people are hysterical about that the more you should be digging in and being like well what do the records tell us and the records tell us people really enjoyed things like ghost stories but they didn't necessarily do much about it day to day they weren't so they didn't they didn't really have a a big fear of it they weren't much different than we are now it was the type of thing where if you were if you encountered something scary, and for them it was mostly demons, right? That would be the thing that they were afraid of, is because they, if they went to church, they would be told that it's demons that are influencing people's behavior. But the thing is about demons is you can get rid of them by invoking the name of Jesus, or this was the belief at the time. So you always were a bit demon-proof by using something like a cross, or by invoking the name of Jesus, or a saint, or something like that. So you're always pretty safe if you were a devout Christian. So it's not the type of thing where, you know, people were so afraid of it that it crippled their everyday life. Right. So religion had a big impact, much more in the daily yeah. lives than, let's say, now. Yeah, I think it, I mean, for sure, overall, it was a more religious society. But how much people believed from person to person, really varied widely. There were lots of doubts, which is what kept the priests in business, right? right? They were always there to correct and to make sure people were on board with Christianity because people have always had doubts about faith and things like that. So, yeah, yeah it's what kept the priests in business. Well, yeah, you know. Hey, and so so what are you, you going to work on next? Are you sticking to this type of story and or this type of nonfiction? Well, I have an idea for a book in the works, but I'm keeping it under my hat until things are signed and sealed. But um, I am going to stick with 
doing medieval history in a way that is accessible to people so that you can come right out of medieval times and pick up one of my books and have your questions answered. And it'll lead you to more scholarship if that's what you want to do, or it'll answer your questions right there. So that's what I'm going to continue to do because that is um, something that I love doing and something that I think is a worthy thing to spend your life doing is educating people in a way that is friendly and accessible. Well, fantastic. Now, we appreciate you being on the show. And, of, and of course, the book, uh, Chivalry and Curfsy, uh Medieval Manners for a Modern World. And our guest is the author of that book, Danielle Sibolsky. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Danielle. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.